Well, good morning, guys. So we're, we've reached that point of the, the season of the year where as the weather starts getting warmer, people start shifting to the, the early service. And so our first service starts growing a lot. But that means that today, since we're kind of a little bit few in number up here, I'm going to need your guys' help, okay? So you got to nod with me. You can even throw an amen back at me, okay? I'm not, you know, so just keep it going. And I, I promise if you help me out, we'll get done quicker, okay? So... Um, with that being said, now I am so excited about this series. Um, as, uh, as you can see, we're in a series called Revive Us. Uh, and we've been studying revival, what that looks like, what that means, and how it can make a difference in our life. And I, I hope you would look at the world around us and agree with me that we need revival. Um, that our, our world just, it's not where it needs to be. And, and we need reviving as well. So that's kind of what we want to talk about. We've kind of emphasized that instead of chasing after an emotional experience, we really need to focus on transformation. And that's really what revival is all, all about, is an inward transformation that just helps us learn what it looks like, what it means. It helps us to to, to understand the fullness of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when you hear the word revival, I don't know what you think of. For, for many people, it's like my mind goes to like a crusade, like a Billy Graham crusade or an old tent meeting or you know some, somebody yelling. But uh, as you study revivals throughout history, they look a little bit different. Um, what I would say, though, is one of the things that precipitates revival, and you see this throughout history, is a spiritual decline. And so when the world is struggling, when uh, we see people falling away, it seems like those are the times when revivals pop up throughout history. Now, if you look at statistics today, what you see is declining membership in almost every denomination uh, in almost every evangelical circle, you see less people going to church now. And um, I, I would say even the last few years with COVID, it really accelerated that trend. And so it, did, it didn't necessarily change it, but it accelerated what was already happening. And so what you see is so many denominations, whether mainstream or evangelical, you see the number of people that are committed in going to church and involved in church, you see it steadily going down pretty drastically. And at the same time, you see the number of people who have no religious affiliation, you see that number going dramatically up. And so I feel like we're at that point in time where it looks like it is perfect timing. And, and I've shared, we can't, you can't force a move of God, you can't plan a move of God, but you can prepare for it. As I mentioned last week, we can kind of set ourselves to catch the wind when the Holy Spirit blows. And that's what we are wanting to do. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're hoping for is that God would move in us to create a change in us that leads to a change in this church, that leads to a change in this community, that leads to a change that expands throughout the world. And it can happen. We've seen it happen throughout history. And so the word revival is from a Hebrew word that means to bring back to life. And so when we think about revival, being revived, it's like I, I immediately think of like CPR. You revive someone, right? You bring them back to life. And, and spiritually speaking, that's what needs to happen. We need to be brought back to life again. And so 
Um, we, throughout this series, we've talked about how that happens. We've talked about, okay, when revival happens, we've got to return to the Word. We've got to get in God's Word and let God's Word dwell in us and change us. We've talked about prayer, and we talked about Nehemiah and how he was a man of prayer and how when we return to prayer, uh, that really sets the stage for revival. We talked last week about repentance, about returning to God. Uh, when we just simply deal with the sin in our life and get... Uh, and, and really truly confess and repent, that's when growth happens. And that kind of prepares us for God to move in us and move through us. And today, I want to talk about returning to worship. What does worship look like? And what role does worship play in revival? And so that's where we're going today. We met, uh, Larry mentioned our Wednesday night services. And if you've missed those, they've been good. Uh, uh, they've been refreshing just to get together. And so we've had a night just to read scripture. We had a night uh, of just to pray. We had a night uh, this last time to celebrate in baptism. And baptism to me is one of the most incredible things we get to do as a church. Uh, I, love see, I love celebrating. I love seeing people say, I'm not ashamed to follow Jesus. And as Larry mentioned, we had seven people baptized. Um, and, and, you know, it never gets old. It never gets old. And so if you, if you miss that, we do have a baptism coming up August 20th, I think, uh, out the river. Uh, so, and we'll, do, we'll schedule more if we need them. So um, we'll, we'll plan on continuing to do those. So uh, this week we meet at 7, I think, for our worship night. Uh, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. A great time to, to praise uh, together. Uh, and then I've had quite a few people ask me, well, they've enjoyed these meetings. They want to keep going. We're going to keep meeting on the first Wednesday of every month, so at least through the summer. So go ahead and pencil it in. So June, whatever, is that the 7th, something like that? I can't remember off the top of my head. June something, uh, the first uh, Wednesday night of June, uh, we'll have uh, our next meeting. We're going to shift our focus a little bit uh, to be on just gathering together. We'll be talking about some theology, our summer uh, sermon series and summer emphasis is going to be on some theology, learning it, and don't be scared when I use that word. It's just the study of God and understanding. Uh, and I've had a lot of people say, "Let's go deeper. Let's 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 take some time to really dig in God's word." And so we're going to do that on on the Wednesday. So we we'll meet on the first Wednesday, June, July, August, even September, uh, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, but I hope you can join us. So. That's kind of the, the info. Now we get to jump in. If you got your Bibles, turn to Colossians 3. Uh, if not, it'll be on the screens. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're, it, it's a, such a powerful passage. Uh, it talks about the change that we need and how we think and how we believe and how we act if we want to experience revival in our life. So uh, let me kind of set the stage. In chapter 3, Paul just essentially tells the believers uh, at Colossae, he says, you've been given new life, so now you've got to step it up. You've got to live it out. If you are in Christ, you need to live it. And so to do that, you've got to set your sights on, uh, on heavenly things. You've got to deal with the sin in your life. You've got to, uh, you've got to, uh, to, to realize, right, that, that everything is spiritual and you've got to live like Jesus. I think that the key, though, is understanding that everything is spiritual. And I think this is a, a big part of the reason why the church is declining in our country, is you see people, that they go to church, but church doesn't really affect how they live their everyday life. So they, they've kind of compartmentalized things. So you've got 
church on Sunday morning, maybe a small group or Sunday school or something else, but they're, they're, each thing is in its own little bucket that doesn't really affect everything else. So at work, you have no idea that they're a Christian because that's a different bucket than their, their spiritual life. Does that make sense? You see that, all right, a lot. It, it's hypocrisy, right? I mean, it's when we claim to be something, but then we really doesn't change us. And the world sees that, and uh, the world is like, well, if they're no different than I am, then why would I change? And so that's, a, that's an issue. That's a problem we see. And the interesting thing to me is that's a very similar culture that Paul was speaking into in Colossians 3. Because in a pagan culture, a very Roman-influenced culture there in Colossae, what happened was uh, right, they would worship and, and their, their idols and their pagan gods, and they would do these things, but then they would go on with their everyday life as if everything, nothing changed, right? That was how pagan worship was. Uh, it was completely separate from their everyday life. You would go into the temple, you would do, leave your sacrifice, you would do this, you would do this ritual. It was very ritualistic. And, and so it became a ritual that didn't change their life. And, and that's the culture that Paul is speaking into. Now I would say that's our culture today. If we're not careful, the church becomes a ritual, a thing that we do, something that we go through the motions that doesn't change how we live our everyday life. Um, and, and so uh, the Christian faith brought this whole new concept into the pagan culture. What we believe influences how we behave. And so that's the, that's the big change that Paul is talking about. If you are united in Christ, if we share in his life, we must follow in his steps. And so this morning, we're going to learn how we can experience that type of revival in our life. And so here's how it starts. The first thing this morning if you're taking notes, if you want revival, you've got to focus on the eternal. You've got to focus on the eternal. Um, and, and this is so important that we take our eyes off of our current situation and we lift them up to see the eternal significance. In Colossians 3, it starts off in verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So Colossians here was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae. It was a pagan culture, as I mentioned. It was immoral. It was a huge kind of, it was very similar to the rest of the Roman world. Um, and Paul is reminding them, you can't live like the world around you. you. You've got to be different. You've got to look different. You can't take your direction from the things that you see. Instead, you've got to look up and look above Look to the heavenly reality, right, to, to gain a new perspective. And so I think so much of our problem with, in our life today is due to perspective. Our perspective is an earthly perspective. Our perspective is a short-term perspective. Our perspective is what is happening right now at the moment. Let's react to it. Let's respond to it. And we don't look above, we don't look beyond to see the significance of the choices we are making. 
I think this gets us into trouble so often, and it's just the natural way to respond. We think about, uh, you, you just, just take for a moment with me and think about the things that have been on your mind a lot lately. What are those things that are worrying you? What are those things that are keeping you up at night or that you're just concerned that have been kind of dwelling on, in your mind? And, and think about, are those, is that a temporary problem or is that an eternal problem? Uh, there's a question I've talked to the youth over the years, and I, I have to remind myself of it all the time because it's such a trap. In the scope of eternity, does this really matter? Just think about that for a minute. Think about whatever it is that you, you've been dwelling on, you've been thinking about, that's been bothering you, that's causing that stress in your life. In the scope of eternity, does it really matter? And, and I'm just telling you, when you lift your eyes up and out of the problem that consumes you and you start looking at the God who loves you, who has a plan for you, who has a purpose for you, when you start focusing on Him, you understand that God is bigger than any problem you face. But when we get so consumed on the temporary, right, on, on the things below instead of the things above, that's when we get in trouble. When we, we recently did a sermon series on Ecclesiastes, same thing, Right? He, he, Solomon talks about everything under the sun. That was his perspective. When you look at things under the sun, again, an earthly perspective, you see problems. It's when you rise above that and set your sights on things above, you look at it from a heavenly perspective, you see a difference. The problem, right, when we focus on the temporary, when we focus on the short term, um, we don't think about the consequences. We don't think about the legacy. We don't think of how it affects everyone else. And so when we make decisions and we focus so much on the temporary, we're only thinking about what do I get out of this right now? If it feels good, do it. All right? If it's convenient, do it. How can I get ahead? What's in it for me? I mean, all these things that our culture is just telling us, that's the issue. And so either God is the God of everything or God is God of nothing at all. And that's what Paul is reminding them. There is no in-between. And so the false teachers at Colossae, they, they really don't understand the supremacy of Jesus, right? The sufficiency of Jesus. And so he's reminding them in the scope of eternity, set your sights on things above. This is not that important what you're dealing with. And so I, I, he, I think he's also, though, kind of reminding them that they can't buy into the lie that they can live any way they want and still claim to follow Jesus. And again, I feel like in our culture today, that's such a huge issue. People think as long as I go to church, that's good enough. That's enough spirituality. That's enough church. That's enough Jesus in my life that I don't need anything else. And and, and I'm telling you, the more you get in God's Word, the more you see if you're a follower of Christ, it changes every single aspect of the way you live. It's a heavenly perspective. It's an eternal perspective. And when you start get, gaining that eternal perspective, it changes your priority and from just responding day by day what you're going through to start thinking about how am I investing in others? How am I sharing my faith? All of a sudden, you're not worried about what people think about you. You're not worried about all that. You're understanding eternity is at stake. There's a lot more important things we need to be focused on. So it changes the way we live. So um, I love one, uh, one author, one pastor said this. He said, heavenly values are to capture our imaginations, emotions, thoughts, 
feelings, ideas, and actions. The believer is to see everything, including earthly things, against the backdrop of eternity. With a new resurrection perspective on life, the eternal is to impact the temporal, the temporary. Everything in life we view against the backdrop of eternity. Changes our priorities. Changes our choices. Changes how we parent. Right? When we start thinking about that, all of a sudden some of the things that we think are so important for our kids aren't as important when you start thinking about eternity. So that's the first thing. Here's, if you want revival, here's the second thing. This kind of goes back to what we talked about last week. If we want revival, deal with your sin. So Paul's kind of setting the stage. He's like, first, get your eyes up. Focus on the eternal now. Now that we've done that, you've got to deal with the sin in your life. And so it goes right back to the entire message last week. If we want to follow Christ, if we want to stay close to Christ, our life must be defined by a continual rhythm of confession and repentance. Numerous times in the New Testament, what we see is Paul give a list of sins, right? So these aren't like the passages you read to when you want to feel good about yourself. And the problem is so often we read these and we fall into this trap of comparison. We say, I don't sin as much as just whoever it is, fill in the blank. Right? And as long as we do that, as long as we start comparing ourselves to everyone else, it makes us feel better about ourselves, but we don't deal with our sin. So Paul just throws it right out here, verse 5. And he's very forceful here. Put it to death. Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, with impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and your old wicked deeds. Man, I mean, this is pretty for he starts off, you gotta put it to death. You gotta murder it. You gotta be done with it. You've got to, you've got to deal with your sin. The Greek word here means to cease completely, to render dead or to consider as dead. Dead things don't move. Dead things don't act. Dead things don't do anything. All right, that's the sin in your life. Uh, what Paul is talking about is killing this sin. And what he starts off with, it was a list of sexual sin. Because he knew, right, when we get focused on that, it completely takes our focus off of God and puts it where it doesn't need to be. Now, it's kind of popular in our culture today, and I've heard people say that, I've seen videos like, the Bible doesn't say anything about, fill in the blank, about uh, premarital sex, about pornography. It's all right. It's all, and I'm telling you that it, when you look at this, right here, this word right here, sexual immorality, fornication, in some versions, it is the Greek word pornea, where we get pornography for, from. It's all sexual sin, it's all sexual activity outside of marriage. It, it's, I mean, that is sexual immorality. And so don't buy into the lie. Don't believe someone that when it says, well, it, what we're doing is not really wrong. The Bible doesn't say anything against it. It does. Numerous places it speaks against it. Because it, 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 what Paul knows is this has the potential to derail your life, to take your focus off where it needs to be. And so he's just pointing it out here. This stuff, you've got to deal with it. And in verse 8 and 9, he goes into this second list, anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language. I would call these like the common sins. 
These are the ones that when you're at work and you're just hanging around, this kind of defines a a whole lot of people you work with. It defines you uh, far too often. And so these are the things we overlook. Um, We don't even think about. We don't even notice because they're so common. And, And Paul here is saying it's not just the big stuff. It's all the stuff. It's everything you've got to deal with it. Uh, we've got to put that stuff to death if we want to be revived. I've shared before, right? I think one of the problems with us as believers is, uh, you know, we think sometimes we're in church that that's enough. We don't really recognize, we don't understand the sin that we commit. There's sins of omission, there's sins of commission, things you do, things you don't do, things you do, all this sin. The more you grow closer to Christ, the more you realize you have sin in your life. My son Drew was talking a, a couple weeks ago about us. There was a, a group on campus where he goes to school at, at Western Carolina that just set up on the middle of like the campus there and had all these signs, pretty much in kind of street preachers, right? You probably seen, and they, like, and it was almost comical how absurd they were. Uh, some of the stuff was, you know, normal stuff, but then they had up signs like, "If you love country music, you're going to hell." I mean, it's kind of that kind of that level, and that's like one of the more tame ones, so they got much worse from there. And so a lot of the Christians and part of the campus group he's with, they were over there talking to these guys, like, what are y'all doing, you know? And, and Drew said, one of the guys asked him, well, you're, you're, you know, you're calling out all these sins, what, about, how, what do you do about the sin in your life? And the guy literally said, he's like, we don't sin. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my response too. Like, really? You know, I think you just did. That's called lying. That's called pride, right? Whatever. I mean, but he said, yeah, we've gotten to a point where we don't sin anymore. And I'm like, that just shows me the absurdity. The more we grow closer to Christ, the more we recognize sin in our own life. The things that are lurking under the surface. The greed, the jealousy, the envy, the pride, the... All that stuff is there, and we need to recognize it. So as you grow in Christ, this is huge, that we have to deal with this sin. When we recognize it, we deal with it. We don't cover it up. We don't run from it. We bring it out into the light. We confess it. We repent from it, and we grow. And I'm just telling you, this is, that's Christian maturity, not acting like you're perfect. And the problem, I think, is so many times Christians want to act like they're perfect. And they spend all their time trying to point out everybody else's sin instead of dealing with their own sin. If you want revival, you deal with your sin. And again, just as we talked about last week, every great revival throughout history, we see people turning from their sin, being broken over their sin. Just crying out to God saying, forgive me, heal me, cleanse me. 1 John 1, 9, if you, God is faithful and just, if you confess your sins, He will forgive you. He'll cleanse you from everything. So we've got to remember that. So uh, it reminds me of Romans 6. It says, since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to, to Him as He was. We know our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we die with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Doesn't mean we're going to reach perfection. It doesn't mean we're going to be like these guys saying, I don't sin. But we're going to recognize it and we're going to deal with it. Uh, One of the Puritan pastors, uh, he said this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
The Puritans even had a word for this. They called it the mortification of sin. This was huge. They preached on this and preached on this. You've got to put to death your sin. So if you want revival, you've got to do it. Here's the third thing if you want, if we, as we keep going. If you want revival, you've got to choose the way of Jesus each day. So I love that Paul doesn't just stay on the negative, that he turns it around, not just what you don't do, but he also focuses on what you need to do. And so right here in Colossians 3, he reminds us we've been raised with Christ, we set our things on the things above, we put to death our sin, and now he gives us some practical ways we do that. Verse 10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. And this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. So the, the, the imagery he is using here is this idea of you take off your sin and you put on this new nature. You put on this righteousness. You put on this new humility, this new kindness, this new gentleness. It's as if you're taking off the old grave clothes, the old sinful clothes, and you're now putting on the new clothes. And so it's something that you do each and every day. That's the imagery we have where we put it on. And so let me just ask you, when you wake up in the morning, what are you putting on All right, each day? Are you, first thing you do, are you reading the news and getting depressed about everything that's happening? Are you getting on social media and seeing how you don't measure up to everybody else's fake reality? <laughs> Good. Are you, what do you do when you wake up? I mean, what are, you, what's infl- what are you putting on the first thing in the morning? Because I th- I'm afraid that many of us, we're not putting on humility, humility gentleness, kindness, the, the fruit of the Spirit, just which a really similar list to what we just read. All right? And so we're choosing to put on jealousy. We're choosing to put on worry, anxiety. We're checking our email and worried about everything we've got to do for the day or where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to get done. And we're worried about all this stuff that keeps us from putting on the life of Christ. Each and every day, we've got to make that daily choice to choose the way of Jesus. Countercultural, it's different, it's tough, and so every day you wake up, it, and I don't think we realize this. It's a conscious choice. Your your attitude is a conscious choice every single day, and I, I'm telling you, I'm trying to get better at recognizing when my attitude does not come from God. Right? I think that's a sign of maturity when you can start recognizing it and just recognize I'm in a bad mood and try to trace it down and figure out why and deal with it. And you've got to choose every day to put on gentleness and tender-hearted mercy and kindness and patience. Patience. We need a lot of patience in our world today. I'm just telling you. It's, we, it's frustrating sometimes. And so uh, this is a, 
this, this new nature that we're putting on, it means that sin doesn't appeal to us like it once did. Why? Because we're no longer slaves to that sin. It, it doesn't control us anymore. We've put it to death. But now, so every single day, we're choosing God by choosing to live like Jesus. It leads us to love others. It leads us to forgive others. It leads us, right, to, be, to live at peace. And I'm just telling you, if your life is defined by conflict, then you need to learn how to put this on every day. If everybody, every place you've ever worked, you've had the bad boss and the people don't like you and you don't like them and you always fuss and fight with everybody you're around, maybe the problem isn't them. Maybe it's what you're putting on each day. And so he's just, Paul is reminding us, what do we put on? Frustration, bitterness, anger, or do we choose the way of Jesus? Revival is choosing to live like Jesus. And finally, uh, if we want revival, you've got to make worship a priority. I told you today it was about worship, and we're just now getting to worship. How much time I got? Okay, we're good. Um, I love that, that Paul, when he continues going here in Colossians 3, he kind of wraps up this thought with the idea of if you have done these things, then your response is going to be to worship. It's going to be praise God. Let's look at verse 16. Let the message about Christ and all of its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, you're doing it for God. And whatever you do, you praise God. That's the thought here. You're filled with the message of His Word. You're, you're filled with it in such a way that it's just going to bubble out. It's going to come out. And you're going to sing about it. So don't tell me the Bible doesn't tell us to sing because it's all throughout the Bible. There's a parallel passage over in Ephesians 5. It says the same thing. Um, it's a little different though. Let's look at it. Ephesians 5 verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with this Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your heart. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Colossians, it's be, let the message of God fill your hearts, fill your minds. In Ephesians, it's like, let the Holy Spirit fill you. In both cases, what it's saying is, don't let the world control you, but let God fill you in such a way that it controls your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your actions. That's when we let God fill us, it will flow through us. And so let's talk about worship for a minute in churches today. Uh, we live in a culture where I would say that we don't worship as much as we should. And what Paul is teaching us here is this is going to be a natural response of people. You're going to be making music in your yeah, I love that in, in Ephesians, right? And making music to the Lord in your hearts. It's, you're going to have that just coming out of you in such a way that you've got to express it. But I, I think our churches today uh, would be described, many of them, as the frozen chosen, right? You're sitting there afraid to express yourself in worship because, right, you're worried what everybody else is going to think. 
And we don't live, in, and I, I know, I understand there's lots of reasons why people say people don't sing in churches anymore like they used to, and, and people have different responses. Some say, we've got to bring back the hymns and bring back the organ. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is we live in a culture that people don't sing anymore. You know, it's not like you watch a musical, uh, you know, and, you know, they're just walking through everyday life, and the next thing you know, they're all breaking out in a song and dance. We don't do that. I mean, that would be a little strange right? if, if, if you're just, everybody just let's start at work, everybody just, let's sing a song. And let's go. No, we don't do that. We don't live in a singing culture. So when we come to church, uh, let's be, this is like the only place we ask you to come and stand up and sing together. And so I feel like because of that, we've gotten a little reluctant to, to kind of worship. We've, we've praised. You're like, well, I don't really sing that good. I don't care. It's not about you. And that's the problem. Worship is not about us. It's not a performance. It's not, we're not trying to impress somebody. It's thanking God for who He is and for what He has done. And so instead of sitting there with your hands in your pocket like, okay, when is it going to be over? Let's just get done. What about just start to sing and let God work in your heart and move in your heart and be thankful? Not to be ashamed, not to be worried. I'm telling you, when you allow yourself to sing, and you, don't, and you say, well, I don't have the gift of singing, it doesn't matter. Again, it's not about you. Let's praise God together. And I'm telling you, churches would quit fighting over worship styles if we just learned to praise God together. That's what we need. And if you look throughout history, I'm telling you, congregational singing has been important through every revival, uh, you look at the first great awakening in 1730s, 1740s, like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. This co- congregational singing was a huge part of it. They would sing these hymns, and Isaac Watts would write hymns, and these were hymns for the common people. And, and what this, this emotional impact would stir the hearts of people. It would help spread the message. The second great awakening, that early 19th century. Same thing, you started seeing more of a movement to, for people to write songs for uh, common, everyday people. And these were songs that they could sing, and these were experiences they could share. Uh, the Jesus movement of the 70s, the same thing. That was kind of what started contemporary Christian music. It's like, let's have songs that we sing and we can, we can worship together. And you see this, and you can even trace it all the way back. To, to the Psalms. The Psalms were songs. We read the Psalms as poetry, but they were songs that were sung. Psalm 46 starts out, to the choir master, a song, right? I mean, you, you read that as you're reading through the Psalms. You'll see these little inscriptions at the beginning that tell us that these were songs that were sung. You had the songs of ascent that they would sing on their way to the temple. All the people had to, to go to the temple multiple times a year for the different festivals. And as they approached the temple, they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. It was a singing culture. And we've lost that today. And so the early church, they would sing and they wrote hymns. The early church fathers wrote so many hymns that you can go back and read. And then something happened. And it's honestly, I feel like it's when government got involved and tangled up with the church. Right? And when that happened, you had a division that happened. You had professionals and common people. And the professionals did all the worship. They did all the preaching. They did all the singing. They did, and they did it in language that the people couldn't understand. And they even had God's Word and the common people didn't. 
And what the Reformation did, the Reformation gave the word back to the people and it gave worship back to the people. And what Martin Luther said is we need to be a people that participate in worship, not watch a performance of worship. And so you see that in the Reformation, what happened? It was, it was a gift back to the people saying, we don't believe just in the priesthood of believers. We believe that every single one of us can participate in worship and have access to God. And this is part of what worship really is. I read this this week. It said, and the word, uh, one church historian said this, this church was no longer composed of priests and monks. It was now the congregation of believers. All were to take part in worship. A taste for music was diffused throughout Germany. From Luther's time, the people sang. The Bible inspired their songs. And the revival started in the 16th century. Uh, hymns were multiplied. They spread rapidly among the people and, and pulled them to, out of their sleep. And then from the resur- after the Reformation, you had Isaac Watts and the Wesley brothers and the African-American spirituals, and you had Franny Crosby. You had all these Protestant people writing the songs that people could sing. Then you had hymnals. Then you had video screens. And We don't have any excuses. We, we've got to learn to worship, and worship is a response of our heart to what God is doing. If we're not careful... Just hear me on this. We're going to return back to a pre-Reformation type of worship where it is performed by professionals and we watch. Just like at a concert. All right? That's not what we want. And I'm telling you, we, we at Cornerstone here, it's our heart, it's our passion. There's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that you never see. We want to sing songs that are scripturally sound. And we want to sing songs that you can sing. And we want you to participate in worship. And so just because you may hear something on the radio doesn't mean we're going to sing it here. Because we want to make sure it lines up with God's Word. We want to make sure it's something that we can sing together. We want it, you to be participating. So, and I've said this before and I'll say it again. I don't want you to leave here and say, man, that was a powerful time that, uh, of worship that the worship team did. I want you to leave here and say, man, that was a powerful time of worship that we participated in. There's a difference, right? It, it's a difference when we actually are participating in worship instead of being a spectator. And so, uh, again, this, this is... This true worship, it, it's, um, it's going to proclaim biblical truth. It's going to preach Jesus. It's going to praise Jesus. And true worship is, I mean, Jesus even said, right, we need to worship in, in spirit and truth. And so that's what we're going to do when we gather together. I'm going to close with a thought from a pastor named uh, Mike Breen. And I read this this week, and it was good. And I just wanted to share it because he, he's talking about why we gather together. What is worship? He said, I believe there's an inherent value in gathering a large group of people together to worship God, to submit to the Scriptures, and to tell stories of God moving in the community and to share the Lord's Supper. We gather because with one voice we choose to worship our risen Lord. We gather to be reminded that we are part of His story, His present and His future kingdom. And we gather so that we can scatter as missionaries to a world that is broken and in need. I believe that to sustain the scattered mission of the church outside of the large gathering, there is the need for a regular and a rhythmic time of gathering together to remind us of the bigger story we are in. We gather 
we scatter. We gather, we scatter. I believe the worship gathering exists first and foremost for believers, for people who are intentionally growing in the relationship with Jesus. Yes, people who don't know Jesus can come, but they aren't the top priority in a worship service. Can they come to faith in a service? Absolutely, yes. Should we provide opportunities for them to step more into a full relationship with Jesus? Yes, absolutely. Can a non-Christian benefit from experiencing the worship of believers? Absolutely, yes. But we need to understand that if the worship service is our primary place, our only place of mission, we've already lost the battle. We may believe in the priesthood of all believers, but do we believe in the missionhood of all believers outside the gathering? I believe the worship gathering should always keep an eye on the shaping of the community for mission outside of the walls of the service. When they leave the gathering, believers should know that they leave as a missionary and an agent of the kingdom. We are part of a bigger story that is reinforced when, upon looking around, we see enough people to remind us that we are not alone in this. We hear stories of victory and redemption, and it nourishes our soul. That's worship. When we gather together, we we hear what God is doing. We see what God is doing. We praise Him for what He's doing. And it it leads us to be transformed and to leave this place to share Christ with others. And what he said there is powerful. And don't don't miss this because that's important. He said if this is the only place we're doing outreach, then we have already lost the battle. And I'm telling you, as our world continues going against and a a differing way from God, people are not going to knock down our doors to come to church. They're going to need us to take the message to them. And worship helps us to prepare ourselves to do that. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and I want to close with one more scripture verse. There's a, there's a passage here that I'm just reminded of and so uh, this morning, and it's Titus 3. And I feel like this kind of tells where we were and where we're going. It says, For we too once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hate, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God... Our Savior and his, his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not by the works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. This is the type of worship we want to return to. Praising God in such a way that we are encouraged to to leave here and do the good works that He's prepared for us. To leave here knowing that we've been changed and transformed, that He has breathed new life into us. And it starts with a relationship with Him. And so I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're struggling. I don't know if you... Maybe you're so caught up in the temporary that you've lost sight of the eternal. Today, God's calling you to let that go and to to, to lift your eyes up. Maybe you're listening or watching online today. We're online several places and we've got people joining in from all over. And maybe you're watching today and you've realized that I've never really surrendered and given my life to Jesus. Today can be that opportunity. He saved us, not by the works of righteousness that we had done, but by His Holy Spirit. So when we cry out to Him, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, He changes us. He, he, 
He justifies us before God. He makes us right before God. But he also adopts us into his family. And that means we have a new way to live now. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Would you bow your heads everywhere in the room? Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We're thankful that we can worship you. We can praise you. For you are a God that created this universe we live in. You created us. And you also loved us. You loved us so much that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and then he died for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into your family. So right now, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for that. But we also want to extend that invitation to anybody listening, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, that right now is the time that they their life can be forever changed by putting their faith and their trust in Jesus to save them. It's not anything that we can earn our own. It's not something we can accomplish. But it's an act of surrender to say, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I know I've sinned. I know I need forgiveness. I know Jesus died for me. And so now I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to walk with him. I want the Holy Spirit to guide me. Your word tells us for all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Lord, we just thank you for your love. We're thankful for this message and this series about being revived. And we ask that you breathe, breathe new life into us. You help us to live for you. And we will worship you. We will lift up the name of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen.